Please take out your copy of God's Word. We are going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8, verses 37 through 47. You can find it starting on the bottom of page 894 in the Pew Bible. John 8, 37 through 47. Jesus is relentless. It has been a heavy couple of weeks. It gets no easier today. We're going to get a break next week. But one last time, Jesus says hard things. Jesus has hard words. If your Jesus never says hard things or if you never have to struggle with his hard words, he's it's not the Jesus of the Bible. I'm not exactly sure if you can rank the hardness of the words of these last three weeks, but you could definitely argue that this one is the hardest. And so let's begin a little bit lighter as we ease into the heavy. Now we're going to talk this morning about identity. If I had to identify myself, if I had one of those little Twitter or Instagram bios, it would have to have something about Jesus, right? I think you're supposed to put that first if you're a Christian, right? Something, there's a cool way to do it, like one with Christ or saint by grace. I don't know what people do these days. Um, you know that I don't do Twitter in part because I'm incapable of being succinct, right? Twitter is about succinctness. I can't do it. So no Twitter. So something about Jesus, then I'd have to have something about Melissa, and then I'd have to have something about my girls. That's how I want to be identified. Notice all the relationships, by the way. Christ, Melissa, daughters. Or summarizing those relationally, son, husband, father. All right, we're going to focus this morning on that last one, father. I, I love being a father. The husband-wife relationship is and must be first, primary, foundational. It is the only one flesh union. But there's something unique about the father-child relationship. Uh, and I especially am a bit partial, something special about the daddy-daughter relationship. There's just, there's nothing like it. It asks and demands a lot, properly done. It is death to self for their life. It is seeking their good before and above my own. It involves lots of time, lots of attention, but it also involves great joy and delight. I boil parenting down to three things. It is relentless affection combined with persistent discipline soaked in the gospel of grace. Affection, discipline, gospel, right? Focus on that and parenting is actually quite fun. My daughters are lots of fun and being their dad is a, just a great joy. But unfortunately for them, there is a basic principle of life that plays an important role in our text this morning. Children look like and live like their parents. Children act like and speak like their parents. You can learn something about the identity of the parents by observing the activity of the children. Now, you know that I love college basketball. I love college basketball in part because my father loved college basketball. Did I wear this same tie last week? Yes, I did. Will I wear it again next week if we keep winning? Yes, I will. So be ready uh, for it. Five o'clock this evening. Duke, Carolina. It's coming. So my daughters are growing to be college basketball fans because their father and their grandfather and their great uncle played college basketball at Carolina. Right, there's a pretty funny series of commercials right now on. We don't really watch live TV anymore. It's in part because I don't want my girls seeing commercials. It's amazing what they put in those these days. Um, but we've caught a few trying to keep up with basketball. And Progressive Insurance has a series right now with this uh, mustachioed character, Dr. Rick, who wants to work to prevent parentomorphosis, which is, he says, is the process of becoming like your parents. 
Right, so the tagline of these commercials is, progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but it can save you money. Right, they're, right, they're, right, they're funny commercials because we've all experienced this as we've grown up. My dad yawns a bit like Tarzan. Uh, Melissa has pointed out that I've started to yawn a bit too Tarzan-like. Right? So I'm trying to fight that. Pray for me. I used to think it was absurd that my dad seemed to not be able to sit down or get up without very loud and painful groans of some sort. Well, now I cannot sit down or get up without a very loud and painful groan of some sort. He loves sports. I love sports. He loves to read. I love to read. He was a great father. I'm desperate to strive to be a great father. But you know the phrase, like father, like son. And we all recognize the basic truth of this saying. Where does it originate? That's a good question. There's these old anonymous Latin phrases that it may come from, but it may originally come from the scriptures. Ezekiel 16, 44. The truth doesn't just hold for fathers and sons, but also for mothers and daughters. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. So it probably comes from that. But context. What is Ezekiel 16 about? Go read it. It's one of the rougher chapters in the whole of Scripture. How are these daughters like their mother? Who is the daughter and the mother? Well, the daughter is Israel, and the mother is the previous inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, those whom God removed because of their great sin. The whole passage is about the great sin of Israel, couched in terms of adultery, and even more graphically in terms of whoredom. Over and over, God says, you played the whore. Your blatant idolatry, your offering up of your children to be burned before false gods reveals who you really are and reveals whose you really are. You see, activity reveals identity, reveals paternity. What you do Reveals who you are, reveals whose you are. Like father, like son. And that also applies spiritually. What Jesus is going to do this morning is he's going to take and use this same principle to further clarify for us what it truly means to believe in him and to be his disciple. And so here's your question this morning Who is your father? And as we're going to see, there are only two answers. Is God your father, and how can you tell? Well, let's, let's see. But first, we need to, again, establish our need. Why should you pay attention? Why should you listen to God's word this morning? I'm desperate to help all of us accurately discern our spiritual condition because eternal life is on the line. But this is difficult because of our heart's great capacity for self-deception. So let's start, point number one, with the deceitfulness of sin. But I would like to be brief there, and then all I want to do for the rest of our time is look at the text under two more headings. We're just going to look at the children of the devil and the children of God. What generally characterizes these two groups? There's much more that could be said, of course, but I want to focus on two main things for each category from the text. We're going to see that the children of the devil are characterized by murder and lies. You think, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not really a liar. Well, hold on. And then we're going to see that children of God are characterized by love for Christ and love for the word. So we're going to see which of these things most characterizes us. Who is your father? That's the question of the text. Let's read John 8, 37 through 47. 
The Jews just said in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham. Jesus now turns to address that claim. John 8, 37. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came, not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If you would bow with me and let's, let's pause and let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help this morning. Father, I desperately need your help this morning. Now, this is a word we would uh, rather not consider. This is a word I'd rather not uh, preach on. Father, these are heavy and hard words uh, from Jesus Christ. Father, give us ears to hear these words as we need to hear them. Father, whatever it is that we need applied to our hearts, we pray that by your spirit you would work uh, through this word. And Father, I am desperately dependent upon the Spirit to accomplish what needs to be done here. And so we pray that you would minister your word according to the needs of the people in this room. Um, Father, help me to be faithful to the text. Father, help me to glorify Christ. Uh, Father, we pray that you would increase our affection for him. Father, we pray that you would show us our sin and show us Christ as a gracious and kind uh, Savior of that sin. Father, please help us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, let's consider the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, sin has been Christ's theme up until this point. Uh, we don't talk about sin, Christ does. He has just said in verse 21, you will die in your sin. And then he just said in verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And he has just said this because of the spiritual deception of his audience. He has said this because they have just insisted in verse 33 that they are offspring of Abraham. Thus, they are spiritually free. They are spiritually alive. They are God's special chosen people. They are sons of God, sons of Abraham. Verse 37, Jesus says, well, yes, you are offspring of Abraham in a sense. And this is similar to what we looked at last week in verse 30. Remember, many believed in him. Okay, they believed in a sense. Verse 31, Jesus says to those who believed, If you abide in my word, 
you are truly my disciples. Let's keep in mind, everything that we're reading that Jesus is saying, he is saying all of this to those who believed. These are words that he is ministering specifically to those who have professed some sort of belief in him. So keep that in mind. Jesus is clarifying what belief actually is. There is belief and there is biblical belief. There is belief and there is saving belief. And so we considered last week how it is quite possible to believe some things about Jesus and not actually believe into or believe onto Jesus. There is such a thing as unbelieving belief. When Jesus says, if you abide, you are truly my disciple, there must be such a thing as falsely his disciple. Do you believe? Okay, great. But John and Jesus warn us that there is an unsaving belief. Do you abide? Maybe that's the better question. Because Jesus defines believing as abiding. And we'll return to that in point number three. But again, I'm I'm highlighting this because I think John and Jesus are highlighting this. I'm emphasizing the possibility of thinking you are saved when you are not because I think that Jesus himself is right now dealing with people who have professed belief and who think they are saved when they may not be. And I think this is a much more common problem than we think. I am sure that there are some in this room, just based upon the numbers in this room, that think they are disciples of Jesus when they are not. And so again, we have a very urgent and a very helpful word before us today. You need to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin. You need to be aware of your heart's great capacity for self-deception. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's what we're seeing right now here with Jesus' audience. We are offspring of Abraham. Well, yes and no. Jesus is again drawing a distinction, and it's an important one. Look again at 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, Jesus says. Skip down to 39. The Jews, the Jews again affirm that Abraham is their father, but Jesus replies, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. They are not doing those works. We're getting to that. But if they are not doing the works of Abraham, then Jesus says they are not Abraham's children. So verse 37, Jesus says, you are offspring of Abraham. Verse 39, Jesus says, you are not offspring of Abraham. What's going on? Bible study. This is why you should all come to Bible study. We just looked at this on Thursday. My dream is one day to have as many people in Bible study as we have on Sunday morning. I know you're saying, keep praying, keep praying. I'm going to. But we just read in Romans 9, 6. We'll study it again this week. Paul says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. That's what Jesus means. Sure, they are physically Abraham's offspring, children of the flesh, but they are very much not spiritually Abraham's offspring, children of the promise, grace, faith. Romans 4.11, Abraham is the father of all who believe. So sure, there is a sense in which they are Abraham's offspring, but not in the sense that matters. They are spiritually self-deceived. They assume that because of their physical descent from Abraham, because of their parents, because of their ethnicity, because of their religious identity as the Jews, that they have God as their father. 
And Jesus is about to tell them very clearly that they do not have God as their father. But let's be clear. This is not a uniquely Jewish problem. It's not as if the Jewish heart is deceitful above all things. This is our problem. This is a human problem. The human heart, our heart, my heart is deceitful above all things. So we, we need to be clear here that, that we are very prone to doing the very thing that they are doing here. Many of us grew up to some degree believing that we were Christians because our parents were Christians. Many of us believe that we are Christians because we go to church sometimes or because we've undergone some sort of ceremony and walked the aisle or been baptized or prayed some sort of magical prayer. Right? We all have a tendency to look to and depend upon certain things as evidence that we have God as our Father. What are you looking to and depending upon as the evidence that you have God as your Father? Listen to, to J.C. Ryle here. I wanted to just read his sermon on this passage, but listen to Ryle. I'll give you just a few parts. J.C. Ryle says, Strange as it may seem, there are multitudes of so-called Christians who are exactly like the Jews here. Their whole religion consists of a few notions, neither wiser nor better than those propounded by the enemies of our Lord. They will tell you that they are regular church people. They've been baptized. They go to the Lord's table. But they can tell you no more. Of all the essential doctrines of the gospel, they are totally ignorant of faith and grace and repentance and holiness and spiritual mindedness. They know nothing at all. There are myriads in this condition. It sounds sad, but unhappily, it is only too true. Let us settle firmly in our minds that connection with a good church and good ancestors is no proof whatever that we ourselves are in the way to be saved. We need something more than this. We're going to come back to that more than this at the end. We need something more than this. So what is the proof? What are you looking to and depending upon? And what should you be looking to and depending on? There's great potential for spiritual self-deception because of the deceitfulness of sin. So all we want to do for the rest of our time is look at the clear mirror of God's word. All I want to do is hold up to you Jesus' description of these two families, of these two fathers, and compare and contrast and consider ourselves in light of God's word. How can you tell who your father really is? Point number two. Let's look at the children of the devil. And some of you are probably rolling your eyes already. I mean, come on. Is is this for real? What year is this? Children of the devil, children of Satan. Right? Do you really believe? You really believe this stuff? Well, don't tune out yet. Consider Christ's words, not mine. Consider whether or not they have the ring of truth to them. Consider whether or not uh, they are consistent with reality. I think that they are. And, and bear with me uh, for a bit. Christ believes this, so let's, let's consider it at least. Our basic principle is like father, like son. Or children say and do what their father says and does. The identity of the father is revealed in the conduct of the child. Side note, parents, that's terrifying, right? Your, your children are revealing something about you and their behavior and in their obedience. And their, remember, I've said there's no bad children, there's only bad parents. I'm the chief of sinners in that area. So keep this in mind. The identity of the father is revealed in the conduct of the children. So let's consider our conduct in light of this text as we consider first the conduct of Christ's audience. Listen, he's talking to them, but he's also talking to us. Back to verse 37. 
Yes, they are undeniably physical offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And then Jesus himself gives us our basic principle in verse 38. Look at 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Notice how masterfully Jesus is doing this. He's such a good teacher. Notice how. He doesn't yet name their father. He leaves them hanging. He's reeling them in. And he draws a distinction. He speaks what he has seen with his father. They do what they have heard from their father. Not named him yet. But whoever their father is, it's someone other than Christ's father. He's making that clear first. So they assert again that Abraham is their father in verse 39. And then Jesus again asserts back our basic common sense principle. If you were Abraham's children, 39, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Like father, like son. Verse 40. But you are not doing the works that Abraham did. And now it's a little funny if you think about it. They've got to be completely confused at this point. Jesus says, you seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. Well, of course it's not. Right? Abraham lived 2,000 years before uh, Jesus. What does Abraham have to do with Jesus? That's the question. That's next week. As this whole conversation, this whole confrontation is Jesus building towards his claim that Abraham, in a way, saw him. Saw Jesus as God himself, I am. They're going to understand what Jesus is claiming by verse 59, and then they're going to pick up stones to kill him. But they don't quite understand yet. For now, Jesus is simply trying to draw their attention to their inconsistency. And I desperately want to use this to draw our attention to our inconsistency. This is such a basic principle, you're probably already getting tired of me repeating it, like father, like son, but I'm repeating it because though we grasp the general idea, we ourselves are so prone to self-deception. We are so prone to conveniently ignore our own, my own, sometimes significant inconsistency. We say one thing, but then when we do, then we do another. And if we would actually look at these two things together, we would see that they don't go together at all. And yet, we're generally all right with it. We have great capacity for contradiction and inconsistency in our lives. Consider a few. We say that we believe we have been forgiven for an infinite, countless number of sins. Sins so many and so serious that they deserve an eternity of suffering and hell as just punishment. We say that. Yet we refuse to forgive our brother or sister for hurting our feelings or for saying something slightly not nice or, hey, maybe even something significant but which is still comparatively nothing to what we have done, to what I have done and been forgiven for. We confess in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the forgiveness of sins and then we refuse to forgive sins. We say that we believe in God's, that in God's presence there is fullness of joy, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, that knowing him is life, that Christ is working, that his joy, the perfect joy of God himself may be in us, that the God of all goodness and all power is working every single thing for our ultimate, eternal, infinite good, and yet we're grumpy and grumbly and mopey and mad. 
we say, but then we do. And there's often great inconsistency between the two. Jesus is putting his finger on that right here, right now. Verse 41, you are doing the works that your father did. And notice again that your father, he still doesn't yet identify that father. He's still building suspense. He's drawing attention to their great inconsistency leading up to his great reveal. Let me show you what you're doing. Let me show you what you're doing. Boom. Let me show you where that comes from and what that really reveals. But they are just like us. Uh, They are stubborn. How do we respond sometimes when we feel backed into a corner? How do we tend to respond when someone starts to draw attention to our sin and inconsistency? Maybe if some of us are, are doing it uh, right now. This is what I, I, listen, I, I get defensive. I, 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 fire, I fire back. Look at what they do in the second half of verse 41. That's what they do. They lash out. They attack. They mock. We were not born of sexual immorality. What is that? It's hard to say definitively, but it sure seems like they're attacking Jesus here. Back in 727, they said, we know where this man comes from. Back in 642, they said, is this not this this Jesus whose father and mother we know? Yeah, they know Jesus. They know of Jesus. It seems likely then that they would have been aware of the unique circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. The seemingly scandalous circumstances surrounding his birth we were not born of sexual immorality wink wink nudge nudge what about you jesus your father i don't think was married to your mother when they were born when you were born were they so when we start to get uncomfortable when we start to get exposed we sometimes attack right we sometimes seek to discredit or disregard the source of our discomfort i think that's what they're doing If they can discredit Jesus, they don't have to pay any attention to the words of Jesus. So as he draws attention to their sin and their inconsistency, they try to discredit and attack him. Second half of verse 41. They double down. Verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. Here's what they really mean. Verse 41, we have one father, even God. And now we get down to it. God is our father. That is their claim. That is the assumption of them at that time. But it's also currently the general assumption of everyone now. Alan Jackson. You didn't expect to hear that name today, did you? Most of you did not have the great privilege I had of growing up in the South. But you were at least spared some terrible music. Um, Maybe you've never heard of Alan Jackson. Maybe you've never heard of Honky Tonk Christmas. Count yourself blessed. But Jackson effectively sums up the spirit of the age when he sings. Here comes a Baptist. Here comes a Jew. There goes a Mormon and a Muslim too. I see a Buddhist and a Hindu. I see a Catholic and I see you. We're all God's children. All right, lyrical genius. Let's give him that, right? But is it theological genius? It's what basically everyone believes today. But is it true? We're all God's children. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. If. If this, God is your father. Which also then means, if not this, God is not your father. 
So let's be very clear. We are not all God's children, according to Jesus himself, the Son of God. There is no universal uh, fatherhood uh, of God. Jesus is very clear here. Skip to verse 44. Here it is. Some of the hardest words. Straight from the lips of Christ. You are of your father, the devil. Satan is your father. That's what Jesus says. The devil himself is your father. Again, let's, let's just acknowledge that for most of us in 21st century America, like this sounds crazy, doesn't it? At first, it just sounds crazy. And I don't know, though. I, so I, completely honestly, I used to be a little embarrassed about kind of the whole Satan thing. Let's be honest. Funny little guy in red with horns and a pitchfork or scary guy in horror movies that likes to haunt people and move stuff around and mess with you when you're home alone. Well, sure, that's ridiculous. But that's not Satan. He is smarter than that. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's crafty, sometimes quite compelling, sometimes quite appealing and beautiful even. What do you think an angel of light looks like? Appealing, beautiful, attractive. Satan knows what he's doing. And he loves for us to not really believe in him. He loves for us to, to minimize him through mockery and movies. But as I mentioned last week, it's important to know your history. And the more that you really know and study history, the more that you will have no problem believing in the existence of Satan. Read your history. Go read first-hand accounts of the slave trade. Go read historical records of the Nazi experiments on the Jews. Go read an account of the Hutu slaughter of the Tutsis in Rwanda. It's a wonderful book. The title is amazing. It's, we regret to inform you that we are all going to be killed. It's from an actual letter that some uh, Tutsis were able to, to escape out and release. It's like, hey, we're going to be murdered. Help us, please. I don't have a hard time believing in Satan. History is full of horrible, inexplicable evil. If there is a good, benevolent, spiritual being, which basically everyone believes, why would it be so hard to believe that there's also an evil, malevolent, spiritual being? Just look around. Evidence abounds. So don't write Jesus off here. I think he is, he is far closer to reality than any of us are. He knows. Back to verse 44. So here is this Satan. He exists. And Jesus tells us a little bit about him here. And then how we can recognize those who are his. He says, 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That's, listen, that's our principle. Literally, the Greek just says, you desire to do your father's desires, like father, like son. You desire what your father desires, like father, like son. You do what your father does, like father, like son. And what does Satan do? Rest of 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's a long verse. There's a lot in there. Simplify. Murder and lies. Murder and lies. That is the what and the how of Satan. Remember, Satan in Hebrew just means adversary. As the adversary of the God of life, Satan's purpose and goal is death. His aim is wreck and ruin, hurt and harm, misery. To oppose the God of life, he seeks to encourage the sin that is death. So that's his aim. That's his what. How does he do this? 
lies. Jesus says he does not stand in the truth, and he is the father of lies. And this was his how from the very beginning. Genesis 3, to Eve, did God actually say? Well, yes, he did. <laughs> lies. Satan is calling into question God's word. This is how Satan operates. He's calling into question God's word. Does God actually mean this? That can't actually really mean that thing that it says there. Did God actually say? No different than how he operates today. Did God actually say? Second, Satan says, you will not surely die. Outright lies. God said you will die. Satan says you will not surely die. And so there Satan is calling into question God's goodness, God's, God's truthfulness. That's how he operated then, and that's how he operates today. Hey, this thing, this sin that God is telling you about, God's saying to stay away from, ah, you know, that thing's actually good. He's not, God's keeping you from something that's good. Um, you will not surely die. This thing that Jesus just said is enslaving, I won't actually enslave you. Oh, hey, these are big sins. This one's just little. No big deal. This is how Satan operates. Lies. And so verse 37 and verse 40, in seeking to kill Christ, they are proving themselves to be the children of their father, the devil, a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. What they do proves who they are and what they do proves whose they are. Like father, like son. But, I don't know about you, but some of us are probably tempted to feel pretty good here. Well, I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not seeking to kill the Christ. Well, hold on. Let's think back last week to Ralph Venning and his work, The Plague of Plagues, or The Sinfulness of Sin. Remember, the second most important thing that you can know is sin. The sinfulness and seriousness of sin. Remember how Venning so effectively described sin as the evil of all evils, the only evil. We think of sin as a missing the mark. We think of sin as a mere mistake. You know, hey, no big deal. It's God's business to forgive this stuff. Uh, we think that sin is breaking the rules or the law. We don't care much about rules or law anyway, so this stuff's not that big of a deal. Church, we have to see sin for what it is. Remember, Satan means adversary. Satan means opposed to God. Remember how Venning defined sin. He said sin is walking contrary to God, opposed to God, rebelling against God, rising up against God as enemy, striving, contending with God, despising God. These are the same things. Satan, sin. Sin makes men haters of God, resistors of God, fighters against God, even blasphemers of God. In short, atheists who say there is no God. Sounds like Satan. He continues, Venning. Here it is. Here's what your sin is. Here's what my sin is. Sin goes about to un-God God and is by some of the ancients called deicidium God murder or God killing. Sin is an attempt to kill God. We're tempted to say, you're tempted to say, hey, well, at least I'm not trying to kill the Christ. Yes, you are. That's what sin is. All sin. We all desperately need to see sin for what it is. Great, you're not a murderer. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and to the hell of fire. Do we see our anger for what it is? What about all that complaining and grumbling and discontent and disappointment that so characterizes so many of us? What is that? It's unbelief. 
Which is, by the way, the sin. Like, this is it. They're like, all right, he's a murderer, I'm not a murderer, so I'm okay. Let me clarify what unbelief is. Listen to the words of Spurgeon here. Again, we're trying to start to see sin for what it is. We need to see our anger, our unforgiveness, our complaint, our discontent for what it is. Unbelief. Well, what's the big deal? The prince of preachers. Is it not a sin for a creature to doubt the word of its maker? Is it not a crime and an insult to the divinity for me, an Adam, a particle of dust, to dare deny his words? Is it not the very summit of arrogance and extremity of pride for a son of Adam to say, even in his heart, God, I doubt thy grace. God, I doubt thy love. God, I doubt thy power. Oh, sirs, believe me. Could you roll all sins into one mass? Could you take murder and blasphemy and lust and adultery and fornication and everything that is vile and unite them all into one vast globe of black corruption? They would not equal even then the sin of unbelief. This is the monarch sin. This is the quintessence of guilt. This is the mixture of the venom of all crimes, the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah. It is the A1 sin, the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work of the devil. Like father, like son. This is what characterizes the children of the devil, the world. All may not be running around and taking the physical lives of other people. Great. But all are angry. Murder. All are lying, unbelieving sinners. Unbelief is the chief characteristic of the child of the devil. The unbelief that is the ultimate sin against the gracious God, the sin that seeks to ungod him and to kill him. What they do reveals whose they are. What does what you are doing reveal about whose you are? Like father, like son. Who are you like? Who am I like? Honestly, sin, unbelief, that's what characterizes the children of the devil. And listen, I, uh, let's be careful and, and clear here. I'm sure that some of us are, are quite concerned right now. But I still sin. I, I still struggle with sin. I'm the chief of complainers. I struggle with this content, which you've just said is unbelief. Of course you do. And so do I. So point number three, let's consider briefly what characterizes the children of God and try to sort this out. Much of this will overlap with what we looked at last week. So I'll try to be short and, and wrap up. And let me draw your attention to two main things. Let me be clear first. Though. Again, let's be clear. Children of God are not sinless. The children of God are not sinless. I am far from sinless. But children of God do and will, by the grace of God, increasingly sin less. Okay, why is that? So we just said that children of God still sin. We just said the chief thing that, that characterizes the children of the devil is their unbelief and their sin. Again, how do, we, how do we distinguish between these two things? Which one is this and which one is this? Jesus gives us two tests. Here, here you go. It is these two realities that reveal the identity of a child of God and that will result by the grace of God in less sin. First characteristic of a true child of God, back to verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, 
you would love me. That's it. It's that simple. A true child of God is characterized by true love for the Son of God. You believe in Christ. Great. What do you mean by that? You believe in Christ. Great. We've seen in great detail how there is a belief about Christ that is not saving, trusting, loving belief into or onto Christ. I believed about Christ for a very long time without any actual love for Christ. Do you love Christ? Man, I can't answer that question for you. Listen, Christ, Christ is a person. He's not a proposition. We believe propositions about him, but he is a, a person. He's real. He's alive. He's active. He's good. He's present. He speaks. He can be known. He can be enjoyed. This, that's what we do with persons. That's what we mean when we talk about having a relationship with persons. We mean we, we love them and we relate with them and we interact with them. Christ is a person. Do you love him? It was a very uncomfortable but very life-saving realization for me years ago that I did not love Christ, which revealed that I did not know Christ, which opened the door for the grace of God to finally come in and save my stubborn, selfish, sinful heart. Listen, Christians love Christ. That shouldn't be complicated. Like father, like son. The father, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Is Christ your beloved are you well pleased with Christ? Listen, here's the point of all of this. The more I read the scriptures, the more by the grace of God I grow in my understanding of who he is, the more by the grace of God I grow in the understanding of my own wretched heart, the more I read of the Psalms and their description of what it is like to be his and to know him, the more I am painfully aware of how foreign this is to so many of us, of how foreign this was to me for so long of how little, remember Martin Lloyd-Jones says, how little we understand what it truly means to be a Christian and what and who we have in Christ. But my desire, my goal, I don't know how, how to go about it well, so be patient with me. But my goal is, as I'm seeing, I think by the grace of God, as I'm starting to finally see, I'm creeping on 40, I'm getting old. It's taken me a long time. But I'm actually starting to see and believe how glorious and good he is. How knowing him actually is life. Not just intellectually, not just theoretically, but true fullness of life. All I'm trying to start to communicate is that Christ and faith in him is meant to be experienced and tasted and enjoyed and lived. Like, do you actually know something about the misery of sin? Like, have you just been laid low before about how wretched you actually are? Ah, listen, I've, I've had some low moments as God takes wives and daughters and churches to reveal to me how wretched my heart actually is. Like, do you know something? Have you tasted and seen that your heart is not good? <laughs> do you know something of the gladness of the grace of God? That he is good. And that this, in light of this, is what makes for great gladness and peace and contentment. Like, are you happy in Christ at all? And back to the Ryle quote from earlier. We need something more than this. More than this, this belief about these truths. Okay, what? What does he say? He says we must be joined to Christ himself by a living faith. We must know something experimentally 
of the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And just one of the big things I'm trying to emphasize and understand is, listen, that grace works. Grace does something. Grace makes God's people glad. Grace doesn't make us perfect. Grace doesn't make life easy. Grace doesn't mean that we struggle. But Paul can say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Paul suffered so much more than any of us. Paul can say we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing because of the grace of God that has made him glad. J.C. Ryle goes on. Love to Christ is the infallible mark of all children of God. Would we know whether we are born again, whether we are children of God, there is one simple way of finding it out. Do we love Christ? The sentence is full of condemnation to all who know nothing experimentally of Christ and neither think nor feel nor care anything about him. Crowds of so-called Christians are in this unhappy state and are plainly not God's children, whatever they may think. The sentence is equally full of comfort for all true believers, however weak and feeble. If they feel drawn towards Christ in heart and affection and can truly say, oh, I do love him, they have the plainest mark of being God's children. And if children, then God's heirs. Here was kind of the realization for me. I lived 20-some years of my life in church, a Christian, believing about Jesus. Here's how Ryle puts it. He puts it, do you think, feel, or care anything about Christ? I went for over 20 years Besides the, like, the hour on Sunday morning and the youth group, I was the pastor's kid, so I had to go to youth group. Um, so I went to youth group. Besides those two windows, I didn't care a lick about Christ. I didn't feel anything about Christ. I didn't think about Christ at all. You can't love Christ and not think or feel or care anything about Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ? For love is the infallible mark of the children of God. Do you love Christ? And again, I know, I want to be, I'm trying to be careful here. I know you don't love him perfectly. I don't love him perfectly. My main, are you concerned about how little you love Christ? That's a good sign. Because I'm seeing who he is by the grace of God, seeing his glory through his word. We're seeing who this Christ really is. And I am seeing, like, you know, five o'clock, guys, I'd really rather be watching basketball right now. Like, I'm being completely honest. Like, I'm, I'm trying not to be focused on this game at five. How wretched is my heart? That I can still be here preaching about eternity and the grace of God and all his glory and all his beauty. And there's still this little part of me that's like, yeah, but basketball. Basketball. Oh, that's absurd. That's absurd. Basketball can be good and I can enjoy it in the, in the right thing, hopefully. But it's nothing compared to this. So again, I, you know, I'm not trying to hold up this standard and say, do you have like this Piper-like passion where you stand and all these things and here, if you're not Piper, you're not saved. No, again, that's, I'm not saying that. I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm aware of how short I fall in this. But do you love Christ? That's, that's the question at all. Is it a seed, small, growing, developing, flourishing? Is there love for Christ? How does that happen? You're concerned like me. You're aware that you do not love Christ like you want to. What do you do? Well, consider the second characteristic of a true child of God. Here's the answer. Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And did you catch all the words in our passage? This is the distinction. This is the divider. Verse 37, my words find no place in you. Verse 40, I told you the truth. That's words. Verse 43, you cannot bear to, bear to hear my word. Lies are Satan's how. Those are false words. The truth is our how. God's. 
true words. The father speaks and his children listen. And to hear, to listen to the word of God means to receive and to respond to the word of God. To hear the word of God is to love the word of God and do the word of God. We just saw this in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Remember, believing is abiding and abiding is persevering, obeying, communing. All of that happens through the word of God. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We relate to one another through words. We reveal ourselves to each other through words. And so does God. Here, in these words. These words that reveal to us, but not only that, relate to us the Christ who is life. And so it makes perfect sense that the child of God is characterized by a love for Christ, which is revealed in a love for the word of Christ. And listen, that looks like actually giving yourself to the Word. That looks like actually reading the Word, actually meditating on it, actually shaping your life in accordance with it. This is just what it means to be a Christian. It's to be people of the book, the good book in which we find the good God of life. We've just gotten way too comfortable with, uh, you know, it's really hard for me to find two minutes to read one chapter of the Bible a day. We're like, ha, 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 we know. We all struggle with that. Again, I get it. Again, I struggle. But what? These are the words. The apostles said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Christian, you have nowhere else to go. Christ has the words of eternal life. Read them. Meditate on them. Love them. Live in light of them. Love for Christ and love for the word. That's what characterizes a child of God. Which just then has to mean that no love for Christ, lack of love for Christ, apathy, disinterest in Christ is one of the clearest marks of not being a child of God. And next to that, there's no clearer mark of not being a child of God than disdain and arguably just disinterest in God's word. I, I can't be interested in God and not be interested in what God cares about and, and what God says. Like, it's just common sense. And so, who is your father? Like father, like son. Activity reveals identity, reveals paternity. What you do reveals who you are, reveals whose you are. Okay, so which of these two categories most characterizes us? There's, just, there's no more important question than this. And the goal is yeah, Jesus is speaking to this crowd that has professed belief in him and has said, Hold on, let me clarify, let me be clear. Why is he doing that? Because there's nothing more important than this. Because knowing God is eternal life. The goal of this is God. The goal of this is joy in him. That's what Mike and I want for all of us. And that's what we can and should have in Christ. Why and how? It's because of the gospel of Christ. Do you know that gospel? Do you delight in it and live in light of it. That sin that is our attempt to ungod God, that sin that is our attempt to be like Satan and murder God, that sin that deserves death and hell because it is the rejection of the God of life and heaven. Do you really understand what God does with that sin? He takes it. All that you've done, all that you've deserved, 
How woefully short you and I fall of all of this. He knows your unbelief right now. He knows my unbelief. He knows how absurdly I love other things more than him at times. He, he takes all of that that continues to characterize our lives, and he takes all of that, and he dumps it on Christ. That is what should change everything. Okay, so let's be clear. Being a Christian is not about being a good person. You do not become a Christian by cleaning up your act and becoming a good person. You become a Christian by coming to the good person, Jesus Christ, by believing in Christ, by receiving the grace of God that does not ignore your sin, but pays for your sin himself in Christ. The gospel is that Christ has taken my place, taken my sin, and taken my death. He dies so that I can live. I tried to murder him with my sin, and he dies so that I can live. Church, grace upon grace upon grace. And what if that is actually true? What if I deserved an eternity of hell? What if my heart's as bad as I'm starting to see that it is, and I deserve an eternity of hell, but I get an eternity of heaven all because of what Christ has done for me? Gladness, church. That's what that realization has to do for us. Grace makes God's people glad. And that's what I want for you. And that's what I want for me and for my family. Gladness in the Lord. And it's found in knowing him in his grace. All of this sin. And then look at all of this grace. I'll close with Thomas Watson. He says, it is the enjoyment of God that makes heaven. There shall be a loving of God, an acquiescence in him, a tasting his sweetness. Not only inspection, but possession. We shall be continually in his presence, continually under divine raptures of joy. There shall not be one minute in heaven wherein a glorified soul may say, I do not enjoy happiness. That's what's coming. That's the goal. Glory, happiness, joy. And we can have a taste of it now in Christ. It's only and all found as a child of God, with God as your loving Father. Is he your father? Do you know, know this great joy that is found in him? Come to him. Come to the Christ of grace and live. Bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Our father, we need your grace. We desperately need it. We need it far more than we are aware. We thank you that you give it in far more abundance than we are aware. Father, forgive us for our sin. Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us for our sin. And yet how quick we are to run back to that sin. And yet you continue to forgive us. Father, fill us with thankfulness and fill us with, with joy because of that grace. And I pray that that grace would then lead not to the excuse for, for licentiousness, excuse or right, I can just keep sinning. No, but that grace was like, oh, look how good this God is. And give us the great desire to be more and more like him. To more and more reflect our father. To less and less reflect our natural father. And now to, by your grace, reflect our spiritual adopted heavenly father. So, Father, we thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. We thank you for giving us Christ when we were your enemies. Father, fill us with joy in Jesus, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.